Listener Production. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, welcome back. It's the first week of November. Rosie's at home. She's doing quite well. She will be back soon. She's slowly getting back into her routine. I, meanwhile, am slowly working my way back home to New South Wales after five pretty fabulous months here in Queensland. But none of that is really important right now. None of that really matters. What we need to talk about is the big breaking news because X-Ray, X-Ray, Tiger King 2 is coming very soon. You've probably already been made aware of this if you've been living on this planet because people are pumped. They're planning viewing parties. They're designing costumes. I am one of those people. I'm totally invested in all this nonsense. I know it's garbage and I know that making this sequel is just a desperate grab for cash, but I don't care. I'm going to be watching the entire thing the day it comes out. The trailer dropped just last week. It's totally bonkers. Two and a half minutes of insanity, just pure flash and trash and guns and cats and jet skis and boobs, and it's all underscored by Liza Minnelli singing Maybe This Time from Cabaret. It's such glorious rubbish, and you need to see it immediately if you haven't already, because it might be taken down soon. And although the series is scheduled to drop on November 17th, it might end up being delayed because a few days after the trailer was released, Miss Carol Baskin, good friend of the pod and queen of the glisteners, um, she took legal action to try to get the trailer taken down and to try to force the second series to be re-edited before it can be released because she never gave permission to appear in it. Basically, as soon as they saw the trailer, Carol and her husband Howard immediately filed a lawsuit against Netflix and against the production company that made Tiger King for breach of contract. Because as we all know, Carol and Howard agreed to appear in the first Tiger King because they thought at the time it was going to be a documentary about the exotic animal trade and the people like them who were working to shut it down. And they never agreed to appear in any sequels or spin-offs because understandably they really hated the first series. Carol famously called it a reality show dumpster fire. And they very explicitly told the media they would have absolutely nothing to do with A Tiger King 2 because they thought the first series was so deplorable. And then, of course, they were more than a little bit upset to see Carol appearing as what seems like a pretty central figure in the trailer and in promotional images for the new series. So they lawyered up to try to force the production company to take the trailer down immediately and force them to remove any footage of Carol, of Howard, or of the Big Cat Rescue premises from the Tiger King 2 series. So the release might end up being delayed, but at this stage, it's set to drop November 17th, which means we'll have about two weeks to get ourselves up to speed on the world of Joe Exotic and all those wild characters surrounding him. And to help you navigate that, 
I put together a bit of a watch slash listen list of some of the documentaries I think everyone needs to consume between now and the release of Tiger King 2 to be able to fully appreciate the madness and the mayhem. And one little part of this homework assignment is to revisit the story of Ron and Joy Holiday, the cat dancers. This is a story we served the gist of in September of 2020. I timed the release of it to coincide with the six-month anniversary of the original Tiger King series because the story of the cat dancers is in many ways kind of like a prequel to the story of Joe Exotic and also Carol Baskin herself even makes an appearance in this story towards the end. So we're going to play that original episode. It's absolutely worth a re-listen if you've already heard it. I'd forgotten how bananas this story is. And if it's a gist that you've somehow missed and you haven't heard it before, saddle up. This is a wild ride. And then on the other side, I'm going to give you my suggested list of shows to watch as homework between now and the release of season two of Tiger King. I'll give you a quick gist on why each of them is worth a glance. If you want to jump straight to that, the time code will be in the show notes as usual. If not, enjoy the story of Ron and Joy Holiday. Either way, I'll see you on the other side. Darling, it's your turn to tell me a story today, which is why I'm extra relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are you talking about today? Uh, this week I'm serving you a story uh, about a man and a woman called Ron and Joy Holiday and... Perfect timing. Thank goodness Carol Baskin is in the headlines again, reminding everyone of what a phenomenon (laughs) Tiger King was. Long before Tiger King and even before Siegfried and Roy were a thing or had even met, there was Ron and Joy Mm. Holiday and there were a couple of world-famous dancers who set up one of the world's first ever big cat shows. And this story has everything. It's got a very intriguing love triangle. There are tigers and leopards and Mm. jaguars and there are rhinestones and spandex and sequins and perms. And it's set in Florida. Oh, it's such a fantastic story. But of course, it all ends in tragedy. And there is only one survivor that makes it out of this story alive. Is it one of the animals? You'll find out at the end of the tale. I'm going to keep you in suspense. All right, this isn't my best work, but I'm calling this one Fangs for the Memories, the dramatic story of the cat dancers. That's a pretty good one. Thank you. So, like I said, this is the story of a couple called Ron and Joy Holiday. Mm Mm-hmm. Joy's name originally was Doris and she and Ron grew up in a really small town in Maine and they Mm. were friends when they were kids. They met each other at ballet classes. He was 11, she was 7. But despite the age difference, they bonded over the fact that they were both real outcasts because he was a very artistic type, which is code for Flaming Queen Uh, at a young age. Yes, yes. And she was a very, very awkward dweeb. She had a lazy eye and she had really frizzy hair. Um, And so they were both picked on a lot, but they found each other and they just united over their love of dance and their dream to go on to become professional dancers. They couldn't wait till they could escape this small town and go and take on the world. 
there was. Oh, isn't that just the dream of every queen and his fag hag? Absolutely. It is that classic symbiotic hag slash fag bangle relationship where they were both benefiting from it. They both needed each other. There was no romantic connection whatsoever to begin with. They were Mm. just best friends and, if anything, more like family. But Ron, of course, graduated a few years ahead of Joy and he fulfilled his dream by moving straight to New York the second he finished with everything at high school, left Joy back home, but they did stay very good friends. They were in contact just via letters that they were writing each other until the day. Wait, what year is this? Sorry. uh, This is in the 50s, late 50s. When he graduates. Yeah, yeah. So he was born in like 36. She was born in 39. Um, Okay. So while they were at school, they were going through the World War and America was recovering from the Depression, etc. But things were starting to sort of boom in the 1950s and Hollywood was really reaching its heyday. Finally, the day came when Doris was able to move to New York herself and she had completely transformed. So (gasps) in his mind, Ron had remembered this really dorky girl who was constantly getting picked on because of her glasses and her hair. He used to get in fights all the time because he would come to her defence when her bullies would be picking on her. So he really felt like he was her sort of older brother and protector and then all of a sudden she turned up in New York and she had platinum blonde hair and she'd lost a lot of weight and she had just evolved into this total bombshell butterfly, absolutely a glow up. And he was smitten. He told her he'd always just thought of her as his sister, but Baba Booey, things are different now. <laughs> Did you just say Baba Booey? Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Oh, I saw Maya Rudolph won the Emmy as well for um, Uh, Big Mouth. For playing, Mm. um, did she win for Big Mouth? She also won for playing Kamala Harris. Oh, really? Yeah. On SNL, yeah. I only saw the Big Mouth one because I follow Big Mouth on Instagram. Mm. Bubble bile. Bubble bile. Anyway, so he started to feel a stirring in his crotch and decided that he was going to make (laughs) his move and he got Doris drunk and he seduced her and they decided that they were going to move in together in New York, which of course instantly meant they were going to have to get married because um, they were both raised to be very, very Catholic. Um, Mm -hmm. Doris had actually been considering potentially becoming a nun rather than becoming Mm -hmm. a a dancer in the future. Um, So So he's, I mean, he's bisexual then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but only for hot girls. That's right. Yes. What is what an yep. asshole? <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's got a thing yep, for skinny okay. blondes. Um, yeah. Oh, what man doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, he, of course, designed their wedding gown and they had a beautiful ceremony. Oh, and then heaven. They started their life together in New York and this was the moment when Doris Gagnon rebranded herself as Joy, Joy. Holiday. Can I interject here and say, mm. do you know whose relationship this reminds me exactly of? Who? Um, Fran Drescher and her husband. Oh. So they, yeah, they grew up together in Queens. I don't think they were, cat- oh, no, they were Jewish. They were Jewish, obviously. They were high school sweethearts. They dated for a long time. And she says in hindsight it was always so obvious that he was gay. And it was that exact same thing. He picked mm. her outfits and when they got married he, like, 
picked her dress and did all that kind of stuff. And then they created the nanny together and he was like this creative kind of soulmate to her. And then he came out as gay, I think, either just before the nanny started filming or during nanny filming. And Mm. so, like, they got divorced and he ended up with a partner and um, with a male partner and they went on to be best friends. Mm. But she was like, at the time we were so young and it was so unthinkable, like, if you found someone you loved, you were meant to marry them. That's just mm. what the thing was. And we were deeply in love. And she goes, I think just at the time there wasn't enough information or no one knew what being gay meant or mm. what it was or and no one really talked about it, particularly in religious families. And so they just figured, well, we're in love, so this must be what love is. And they got mm. married. But she's yep. like, if we had been best friends today, we would we would have understood that our love was a different kind of love. But yep. They had no idea back then. Yeah. I mean, these guys were a little bit clued in because from the very beginning they had an agreement that neither of them owned the other one and they were very happy for each other to have um, other lovers if and when they needed Uh. it. They felt like their bond and their relationship was special enough that having sex with other people really didn't matter at all. But they did, you know, they were genuinely attracted to each other as well and they Mm, did have a physical relationship. Anyway, they went ahead and started trying to build their career and they were very determined because they had a lot to prove to everyone back home. They were these little farm kids from Maine, raised poor, and they wanted to show all the people who had bullied them and put them down just how successful they could become. Look at us now. Yeah. And it didn't happen immediately. They kept auditioning for roles and kept getting knocked back. The only way that they could make ends meet was to pose for, inverted commas, muscle magazine. Magazines, wink. Aww, yeah. Um, until they finally got their big break starring in a show at Radio City Music Hall. And immediately. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, huge deal, like massive yeah. step up. And they got rave reviews straight away. And within the space yeah. of just a few months, they were the king and queen of Broadway. They were recognized as the <gasps> very best adagio dancers in the world. Adagio is like an incredibly difficult combination of ballet and acrobatics uh, requires Mm -hmm. incredible strength and agility. And what they were doing was just mind boggling, very sort of Cirque du Soleil before Cirque du Soleil. And so- Yeah, I was going to say that's Cirque du Soleil, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 Every major celebrity wanted to have Ron and Joy Holiday dancing on stage with them. So they danced with Cher, they danced with Liza, Mm. they danced with Mm. Julie Andrews. Mm. They were constantly going on TV, on the Johnny Carson show and morning TV shows. It even reached the point where Jackie Kennedy invited them to come and perform at the White House for her and JFK in a private performance. Why are we doing a podcast and not that, which is clearly our dream life? I know. Well, it would be very, very physically strenuous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Talent. Yeah, they've got a level um, of oh determination and discipline we do not. Um, no. Yeah, so massively successful. They were touring all around the world and enjoying the celebrity lifestyle and enjoying yeah. the open marriage that they were having as well. Um, Ron almost had a brief fling with Siegfried before he met Roy, <gasps> um, but he ended up turning Siegfried down saying, no, he's not my type, he's too femme, which I have to say is very rich coming from a man who has his eyeliner literally tattooed on. Um, <laughs> oh, my mum does that too. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 
And you should see the wigs that he wears as well and the way that he speaks. Every time he opens his mouth, a sequin jockstrap falls out. Um, (laughs) But they kept, like, just going and going and going and becoming more and more and more successful. As they went, the shows became more elaborate, the costumes became more flamboyant. Because they had to keep upping the ante. These were two people who were very sort of damaged deep down and so no level of success was mm. ever going to be enough for them. Yes, they had achieved their it's goal. A bit, they were um, successful It's a bit Liberace-esque. Dances. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of Liberace. I don't know very much about Liberace. I would definitely say in terms of the... Um, costuming and the opulence and um, people just ignoring the fact that someone is so clearly Mm. a raging homosexual that I would draw the parallel there. But if you're seeing any other parallels in the narrative. Well, yeah, because he just kept topping and topping and topping his glamour and ridiculousness and he was on the inside incredibly mentally damaged and, I mean, it was almost like the excess on the outside represented the lack of self-worth on the inside. Mm. Yes, Mm. exactly. Yeah. Nothing will ever be enough for them to actually feel satisfied and comfortable with themselves. Yeah. And so this is now where the big cats become involved in the show. So they met an actor called William Holden when they were doing another show at Radio City. He was a really big deal in the 50s and the 60s, very, very famous actor. And when they were performing together, he was telling them backstage about this animal sanctuary that he had just set up in Kenya. And Ron told William all about his dream of one day having a real live big cat in their shows because they had started doing these numbers where Joy would be dressed up as a cat and dancing like a cat, but Ron really wanted the real thing. And William (laughs) obviously loved the idea. He thought that would be absolutely spectacular. And so he surprised them with a black leopard, a panther that he brought over Mm. from Kenya. They called it Aladdin and he came to live with them in their (laughs) house in Jersey. They had absolutely no. no idea what they were doing. They messed up Big time. They were feeding him tinned cat food and they oh let no. him sleep in their bed and they made every single mistake that they could possibly make trying to figure out how to raise this cat. And then William was like, maybe you should um, look at a book. And so they yeah. decided to get out every single resource that they could find to read up on becoming an animal trainer and they became self-taught jaguar tamers. And what year does this bring us to? What year are we in? Is this the 60s now? This is in the 60s, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it took them a good year and a half to train Aladdin well enough that they could actually incorporate him into the show and the crowd absolutely loved it. No one had seen anything (laughs) like this before. And so they were drawing quite big audiences Everyone was clueless, though, about just how dangerous it really was because this leopard could very easily have killed a fully grown Yeah, human. I was going to ask, like, what do they do? Does he just come out on a Demonte leash or, like, is he? Yeah. Tell me. Literally on a leash that would probably be flimsier than the harness that you were using to walk Boo around yeah. Adelaide. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, no. Yeah. And did he just, like, walk? Did he have to jump through a hoop of fire or something or what? did he just... Along those lines, they didn't actually do the fire thing, but yes, lots of jumping and lots of, oh, look, he'll let me lie on top of him and then he'll lie on top (gasps) of me and just really showing people the fact that they had sort of tamed this wild beast. Tamed it, yeah. Oh, no. 
incredibly dangerous. Things could have gone worse than they actually did. But, of course, things did from time to time go wrong. Um, One time, surprise, surprise, Aladdin did attack Joy cut her up pretty badly on her scalp and on her arm. And they, oh my God. Anytime that they were hurt by him, they refused to go to the hospital because they thought that there was a risk that they might take Aladdin away yeah, from them. So they yeah. would just sort of patch themselves up. And each time they just kept telling each other and telling themselves, this was a silly mishap. It was just an accident. It'll never happen yes. again. There was one time when Joy literally blamed herself for one of the attacks by saying, well, <clears throat> I was on my period. <laughs> Are you joking? No, I'm not. <laughs> so they just oh, kept rationalizing to get <laughs> her period. Oh my god, someone said it for real. <sighs> for real, she genuinely believed the only reason that Aladdin had attacked her was because she was in heat. Wait. Can I, right, so yeah, I was going to say, so not because she was on her period so her her temperament was different, it's because he could smell her menstrual blood. Is Correct. that? Yes. <gasps> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. By the way, just as an aside, I always wondered about that in um, Twilight. Like would the vampires like Edward and stuff go extra crazy when Bella had her period? Like they never really talked about the mechanics of that. <laughs> But you assume, no, but I'm sorry, is it not like quite, it stands to reason Uh, that that would be a problematic time of month for vampires? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't, I I actually don't know anything about Twilight, so I don't know. Who could believe there's a plot hole in the masterpiece that is Twilight? (laughs) (laughs) Continue. All right. So they just kept finding ways to rationalise what they were doing because they knew that this cat and future cats would be the key to ongoing success for them because they knew they had to rely on this new gimmick that they'd found because they were getting old, their bodies were getting tired, they were in their mm. mid-30s by now, they couldn't keep doing the adagio dancing um, that they had been me. doing previously. They're not getting old. <laughs> in dancing when you years. Just said that, when you just said that I imagined them in their 50s, like in dancing, for dancing, yes, they're getting towards the end of the most physical part of their career. Yes. Shall we word it that way? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Fair <laughs> enough. Yes. Coming towards the end of their life cycle as dancers, so they needed yes. this cat gimmick. So they decided they were going to get really serious about training Aladdin and they decided to move from their little house in New Jersey to Florida so that then he could actually live outside mm. as opposed to in their basement. And off the they went to Florida. toilet. <laughs> where they set up the Cat Ranchers dance. And this really sort of put them at the vanguard of the exotic animal performance genre. So yeah. very few mm-hmm. people were doing anything like this anywhere. So they were being yeah. invited to tour all around the world. They went all around the globe at least five times and they started in venues like casinos, in nightclubs, but then they kept growing and growing so that then they were performing in really huge theatres and they were being invited to come and perform private shows for royalty. And Ooh. as the show evolved, it was less about the dancing and more about the magic tricks. So they really sort of inspired a lot of what Siegfried and Roy ended up doing. Interesting. Mm. 
And they started collecting more and more and more cats, leopards and jaguars. And then they progressed onto tigers and they gave them names like Venus and Adonis and Hercules <laughs> and Diva. And they're all hu- names that either of us would be happy to have. 100%. Yes. <laughs> I especially love Sugar Bear, actually. That was a good one. Mm. I'll be Sugar Bear and you'll be Adonis. Mm -hmm. Um, So their hubris became really, really massive. They had this grand vision of what their lives could be and they were just totally blinded to any of the potential risks and dangers and consequences that could affect them or other people. They didn't use even fences in their shows. So they were using those flimsy leashes to control these animals, which are highly evolved predators that can weigh up to 300 kilograms. They're at the top of the food chain. But because they just saw these cats as being their children, they shared their living spaces with them when they were all at home together. They just had this arrogant confidence in their own abilities to control Mm -hmm. and influence the way that these cats behaved. And Someone's so, going to eat a little kid. Mm-hmm, we'll see. Yeah. Um, There's going to be a big cat got my baby happening <laughs> soon. Um, no matter what would go wrong, it just wouldn't stop them. One of the worst things mm. that happened that you would think would get them to pause and reconsider the choices that they're making is one time um, one of the jaguars was about to attack an audience member and Ron intervened and the jaguar bit him all the way through his wrist and his blood loss was so severe that he had to be put in a coma for two weeks in hospital and they almost had to amputate his arm. Yeah. But (gasps) when he got out, they still insisted these animals are perfectly tame. This was just a small mishap and they got back on with the show. Joy had her period. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot, that is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That is, it's like in Tiger King when um, the tiger bit off that man's arm and then he just went back to work there Yep. and was like, oh, I shouldn't have put my arm in the cage and here I am with no arm, Mm -hmm. but it was my fault. Yep. I mean, years and years later, um, Siegfried and Roy famously were attacked by one of their lions on stage. It dragged one of them off by his neck and he barely, barely, barely survived. But then he chose to go on and perform with that same lion again in the future. But the thing is, it's okay, here's where it gets me because it's like it's not the animal's fault. They Mm. are wild animals and they live on instinct and they attack on instinct so you cannot blame them. So I do get the impulse to say it's not them, I did something wrong, Mm. I did something to provoke them. Fine, yes, that's probably true. Mm. But once they've done that, you should say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't force them into this lifestyle anymore then and maybe we should stop this altogether. It's the fact that they keep going after that yep. is nuts. Yeah. Their philosophy was that they would just keep learning from their mistakes and keep getting better and better and better. And, <laughs> like, they were living the high life. They were really, really successful yeah. and famous. They weren't about to give that up. And the show had actually now by this stage reached a point where they knew the only way that they could continue to grow and they wanted to continue to grow was if they brought on additional members in the act because they needed more mm-hmm. than two people on stage controlling the cats. And so they started auditioning people to come and join the cat dancers and they turned down pretty much everyone because it turns out people who are attracted to working with cats usually have a drug <laughs> habit of some sort. <laughs> 
So I they, was going to say a total weirdos, but yes. All oh right. yeah, yeah. They were getting yeah. a lot of Fruit Loops and a lot of yeah. people who were just high out of their mind. Um, yeah. So they gave up on the idea for a while, and then Joy came across this guy called Chuck Lizza when they were on tour in Maryland one summer. And Chuck, Chuck Lizza, mm-hmm, he was a zoology major. He was a musician, and he managed a circus that Ron and Joy went to visit. And mm-hmm. it was kind of love at first sight in a way. He was super, super, super cute. And he was about 30 years younger than Ron and Joy. And mm-hmm. like them, he was a very damaged soul. He was estranged from his family. And they sort of took him under their wing and offered him a job, which was a dream come true for him. They told him they were going to move him down to Florida and he was going to live in their house and he was going to help them train the animals and he became a stagehand for the show and he'd clean out all of their cages. If they're 30 years older than him, how old are they now? What era are we in now? Are we in like the 80s now or something? We are, yep, late 80s and then this starts to get into the early 90s, this part. I honestly don't imagine Florida in any time period other than the 80s or early 90s. Yeah. I don't think it exists outside of that time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. So they got a little toy boy. They did, yes. And it's really weird. You'll hear about this in a moment, but they would tell everyone that they considered him a son and they loved him like a son and he was the son that they'd never had. Yeah. He finally agreed to start going on stage and being the MC for the shows. And then mm-hmm. bit by bit, Ron tried to convince him to actually become a part of the show. And yeah. the only concern that Chuck had was not the fact that the animals could very easily lash out and kill him. He was just concerned about the idea of having to wear tights. So his one condition was <laughs> as hey, long I as I don't have to wear <laughs> the sorts of outfits that you are wearing, mm-hmm. Ron. And I promise I'm going to post some photos of the types of outfits that Ron and Joy were wearing so that you can understand okay. why that was a big deterrent for Mr. Chuck Lizza. Um, but he agreed. He started performing with them and their life mm-hmm. became just incredibly harmonious and joyful. Ron designed all the costumes and Joy did all the choreography and Chuck wrote all of the music and they trained all of the cats together. They only ever used positive reinforcement to train the cats. They Mm -hmm. used rewards. They never used punishment like whips or prods or anything like that. They just used love and affection to influence what the animals did. But, Mm. I mean, I think you would agree with me here. This is all just animal abuse. You're doing it in a way that's not as bad as beating the animal, but at the end of the day, you are yeah. forcing these animals to do unnatural behaviours in environments mm. that would surely be torture for them because they had strobe lights and smoke bombs and so yeah. much loud noise going on and these animals were just tortured prisoners. Well, it's like that um, scene in Blackfish, that documentary mm. about the um, orcas at SeaWorld, and they were doing this right before Tillicum kills one of the most famous, you know, like orca trainer. diver trainer mm. people. He gets confused because they're doing this like training exercise where when he doesn't, where he does a trick right, he gets a fish. And if he doesn't do a trick right, he doesn't get a fish. But when he doesn't get the fish, he gets really frustrated and upset and it confuses him. And then he did a trick right, but the trainer wasn't looking and so she didn't give him the fish. And so then when he did the trick right and he didn't get the fish, he started freaking out because it Mm. messes with their heads. And, you know, 
two minutes later he pulled her into the water and bit her arm off. Mm. Like you can't blame them. It's it's a abu- it's a animal abuse messing with their heads like that. It's mean. Yeah. And obviously they were telling themselves the exact opposite, that they were doing nothing but loving these mm. animals that loved them back unconditionally. Um, but I think today we are far more aware of how yes. bad these sorts of shows are. Anyway, <clears throat> so Chuck kind of became the face of the cat dancers because he was the youngest, he was the prettiest, he didn't have creepy eyeliner tattoo and he didn't wear a wig, so he would be <laughs> the one that would appear on TV mostly uh-huh. because they were getting yeah. a lot of publicity for what they were doing. Um, while he was great as a talking head for the group, he was nowhere near as good or confident a trainer as Ron or yeah. Joy. Um, he had a lot of different incidents. Sometimes those incidents even happened on camera, but even still mm. it wasn't enough of a reason for him to stop doing mm. what he was doing. He believed that he could just keep getting better with time. Everyone was scratching their heads and wondering what's going on with this couple here living together, traveling the world together. A lot of people just assumed that Chuck was Joy's lover um, Mm -hmm. because Ron was, you know, pretty unashamedly flamboyant. Um, Yeah. And probably hooking up with dudes all the time. Oh, yeah. Some people did guess correctly that, in fact, they were a trio. They were Yes, I was going to say thruple. Yeah. It was. Yeah, this is so Tiger King esque. I, I know. <laughs> I can't even. I know. It's fully like these guys inspired this. They had a really, really tight bond, which, unlike Tiger King, was not meth fueled. They genuinely had a deep connection <laughs> with each other. Yeah. Um, they didn't have an official wedding ceremony. They just did something between the three of them. Uh, when they were in private, they would wear a necklace that had a charm on it that was three wedding rings that were all bound together. Um, oh, so they're clearly a thruple then. Absolutely. Like they're yeah. a thruple. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They were committed right. to each other, but they never announced yeah. it publicly. They kept it hidden from everyone. Even though they okay. were madly in love, they just called Chuck their friend. And yeah. behind the scenes, it does actually really sound like an idyllic functional relationship. No one was putting any pressure on anyone else. Mm. They all got their space when they needed it. They each had their own separate bedroom. And like I said, it was all very unconventional because they treated Chuck like he was their son, but then he was also a lover and a member of the (laughs) throuple. Um, But they considered themselves this family unit and they were the co-parents of their magical, magnificent children, the cats. And Mm. so life was good for them for a while and it could have just sustained that way. But in 1995, Ron made the decision that they needed to get themselves a white tiger because... Ron. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, white supremacy in the big cat shows was a very, very real thing, and it still kind of is today. White tigers are super rare, mm. so a lot of people will pay good money to go and see a white tiger. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point, 1995, all these different producers and directors and promoters were saying to Ron, you've got to get a white tiger because Siegfried and Roy are the biggest Siegfried, act in the world Yeah, I was going to say, isn't right that what now. they always yeah. used? Yeah. yeah. Um, they had two white tigers and a white lion. And so they were the biggest act in Vegas, but they were stuck in Vegas. And so this was the cat dancer's opportunity to pick up every other job around the US and around the world if they could just get themselves a white tiger. Um, And like I said, it was a huge attraction because of the fact that the last wild 
White Tiger was shot and killed in 1958. And it's a very, very rare genetic mutation that can make a tiger white. It's only one in 10,000 chance that the um, (gasps) tiger is going to be born with white fur, yes, in the wild. But in captivity, there are more and more and more white tigers because of inbreeding, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And bad inbreeding as well. It all stems back to one particular individual and the sorts of inbreeding that they will do will be one male will breed with his own mother and then they'll force him to breed with one of the daughters that comes out of that litter so his sister daughter and then when she gives birth he'll force him to breed with her offspring which means that he's breeding with his daughter sister granddaughter it's so they're like the royal family of the animal world (laughs) yeah Um, And, you know, it's very, very inhumane. A lot of these animals are born with a lot of deformities. A lot of them have to be euthanized. It's cruel. And um, it also means that the animals can be very, very unpredictable and especially violent and dangerous. So Ron and, sorry, Chuck and Joy were saying, no, 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 absolutely not. We cannot get a white tiger. We can pretty much guarantee that it's going to be inbred. But um, yeah. Ron was really feeling the pressure from all the people who were booking his gigs. And so he kept searching until he could find a seller who claimed that they had a white tiger that was not the result of inbreeding. It was just. But no matter what, you're going to be getting like a Dr. Frankenstein's monster kind yep. of tiger. Yeah. Like, oh, God, yuck. Okay. Um, but he decided to jump on the opportunity and um, he really pushed to convince Chuck to agree and then he really, really pushed to convince Joy to agree to getting this white tiger. Mm. Finally, they came around. They dropped $50,000 on buying Mm. Jupiter along with his brother, Shurkon, which was just a normal orange tiger. Mm -hmm. And they got him home when he was very, very young and as kittens do, he imprinted on one of them and he chose Chuck to be his Mm -hmm. father. He would always go to Chuck and so Chuck took the main responsibility in raising him even though Chuck was by far the least experienced of the three when yeah. it came to raising these animals. Shurkon was a totally placid, normal tiger, but Jupiter from the very beginning was a total brat. Like he knew that he was special. He had a whole lot of white uh-huh. privilege going on. He was very, very stubborn, <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. They called him Mr. Perfect because he was just super arrogant and refused to follow directions. Um, but yeah. they were determined that they were going to find a way to get him on stage because they had designed new costumes they had a totally new act and they knew that they could get to a totally new level of success by incorporating well yeah money's depending on it now like they've invested a lot of money in it so they need it to work absolutely yeah yeah And for a few years, everything was going pretty much swimmingly. Jupiter was difficult, but not impossible. And they were making a whole lot of money. But then in October of 1998, catastrophe struck. Oh, no. Mm. 1998. Gosh, that's not that long long ago. No, not at all. Um, I can't believe I haven't heard of this. Yeah. I'll tell you where you can watch some cool documentaries at the end of this as well. It's kind of been um, hidden. I guess the story was big at a time when, you know, social media wasn't so huge and few of us were on the internet back then. Anyway, um, one morning Jupiter was being 
particularly difficult for Ron. Ron was trying to move him from his night kennel to his day kennel early in the morning. And Jupiter had already been a bit spooked for a few days because there was construction going on to expand the compound near where he would sleep. Um, And so he sort of got halfway from kennel A to kennel B and he just lay down and refused to move. And at this point he weighed 270 kilos. So there was really nothing that Ron could do to convince him to move. So he yelled out, Joy, can you please. Hey, look, I've been drunk at 2am and you've been with me (laughs) where I have laid down. Middle of the street, public bathroom, corner of a club, who cares? And I refuse to move. So Jupiter, I get it. I get Mm -hmm. it, buddy. Sometimes you're over it and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. This was his peaceful protest. He wanted all of the construction to end. Anyway, Ron yelled out, Joy, can you please go and get Chuck and get him to come move his brat of a son? And Chuck Mm -hmm. came down still rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. He was wearing these slip-on moccasin things and Mm -hmm. he walked over towards Jupiter. As he did, his slipper caught on a bit of chain link fence that one of the construction workers had left on the ground and he fell onto Jupiter. So in the blink (sighs) of an eye, Jupiter, obviously startled, turned around, bit into Chuck. Chuck's neck made these four <gasps> super, super deep puncture wounds in his neck and then ripped him and threw him, which <gasps> snapped his spine instantly. Oh. Yeah. So he all of a sudden just lashed out and ended Chuck's and life. And he's dead. Yes. Just snap. Yep. Gone. Well, he had a few more seconds of life because straight away Ron went to him and picked him up and he looked up into Ron's eyes and the only words he was able to get out were, I love. That's not true. Ron made that up. He could not. No. Sorry, Ron, didn't happen of the year awards. You're a liar. (laughs) He, his neck and whoop spine. No, he didn't say anything, but that's fine. I'm with you on this. The other element of the story at this stage that Ron recounts is that Jupiter just suddenly had this look of regret on his face. He was just shocked at what he had done. And he lay back down and just went (laughs) and started spitting out the blood that he had in his mouth. No, he didn't. Ron, bless you, but no, that is not true. Mm. Didn't happen of the year awards, first prize. Joy was the one who then called the police, of course, and then a few weeks later they buried Chuck's ashes in front of Jupiter's cage. And oh, don't rub it in his face, mm. weirdos. Well, they genuinely yeah. believe that, you know, Chuck loved Jupiter possibly more than he loved them. Um, he loved Jupiter more than anything in the world, so they thought it's where he'd want to be. Yeah, but what about what Jupiter wants? Oh, Jupiter had no idea what was going on. But that's what I'm saying. Mm. So just leave him out of it. The ashes. Anyway, okay. Anyway, so both obviously devastated. Joy in particular went into a deep, deep state of shock, whereas Ron Mm -hmm. believed that the show must go on. And the Mm -hmm. choice was given to them as to whether they would put Jupiter down or not. Obviously, they chose not to because this is a very, very, very valuable cat. And they'd Mm. convinced themselves that this was just a freak accident. It wasn't Jupiter's fault. It wasn't Jupiter's fault. I do agree with them on that. No, of course it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, of course it wasn't. He'd been spooked by the construction going on around him and he acted on reflex because someone fell on him. Well, and he's just an animal. He's a wild animal who's not meant to be in that kind of captivity. Exactly. Like it's... Yeah. 
so but I t- they can't ever admit that to themselves because yeah. that means having to reconcile the fact that their entire life is based on animal cruelty and they're never going to do that. That's correct. So once again, we've got these characters who just keep doubling down on the bad choices that they're making. Um, and so I do agree they shouldn't have put Jupiter down, but what they should have done, and every trainer in the world would agree with this, is isolate Jupiter because mm. the rule of thumb is if you kill one person, yes, that's a tragic accident. If you kill a second person, that is totally preventable and that is on the humans, not on the animal. <gasps> Does he kill a second person? He's coming back for more in just a couple of weeks, yes. Uh-oh, tell me. So Ron really wanted to get everything back to normal, but Joy had basically just had a nervous breakdown. She was staying in bed. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't shower. She wouldn't eat. She lost 10 kilos in about five weeks. So she was down to only 40 kilograms. She was very, very frail. Every time Ron would try to get her out of her room, she would refuse. And she was saying that all she wanted was to die. She was praying to God yeah. to end her life. She felt like she deserved it because of the fact that they were responsible for Chuck's death but of course because she was a catholic she couldn't commit suicide because that's a terrible Mm -hmm. sin ron was just determined he was going to get his wife back and so he brought her best friend to come and stay with them and also chuck's best friend and they all tried really hard to help her they took her to a doctor who prescribed her muscle relaxants to help just calm her nerves that's that's not okay Mm -hmm. sure yep And home she went and the doctor said, look, we're going to have to hospitalise her in a couple of days if things don't get better. So Ron Mm. was determined he was going to get Joy to come out and visit the babies because he thought that was the best step in her rehabilitation, come out and actually see the kids that miss you. And so out she came. She started playing with Shurkon. Ron thought this was a really good sign and he decided he'd get her to help with feeding Jupiter. And, of course, (gasps) when she came near Jupiter, she was carrying a Tupperware container of chicken necks. She (gasps) started to shake vigorously. She's on a whole lot of muscle relaxants here. Toxicology reports indicate that she was secretly drinking a lot at this time as well. Plus, she (gasps) had not been eating. So she was not not in a good way. And when she started walking towards Jupiter, she started to stumble. Jupiter was on one of those flimsy leashes that Ron was holding at the time and he jumped up and he completely ripped out Joy's neck, (gasps) then picked her up and threw Ah! her in the air. So she was dead by the time she hit the ground. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did not see that coming. I did not think Joy was going to (gasps) go. Yep. And again, just in the blink of an eye, freak accident. What made this one different, according to Ron, is he believes that this was a very intentional kill as opposed to just an accident like what happened with Chuck. Um, He saw the look in Jupiter's eyes and he believes that cats apparently have this instinct where if a member of their pack is unwell or too old or vulnerable, they won't even think. They'll just kill them because they need to do Uh, what they can to protect the group. So he believes that it was a sort of natural instinct for Jupiter. But at the same time, he did realise, oh, my God, Jupiter, you are inbred after all. I'm sure of it. You are inbred. Yeah. Also, it's just like he's clearly a wild, dangerous animal Mm. whose instincts they cannot control. And it has to be said that... 
she probably had her period. <laughs> <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> I couldn't even get to the end of that without laughing. <laughs> uh, no, but um, for real, it's I don't as if it's anything to do. I think he was just pissed off. Mm. He was just like. Get away from me. Stop this bullshit. Just he wanted to kill things because he's angry and mentally ill. Like it's like in Blackfish. They say after years and years of a life like that, Tilikum went insane. Yeah. It (sighs) makes sense. I mean, Jupiter was only three years old, but in those three years, all he had never known was being Mm. controlled by an animal that is lower down on the food chain than him. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can definitely imagine that there would have been some resentment there for him. At any rate, Mm. um, instinct number one for Ron was to go and get his gun and shoot the animal and shoot himself, but his friend (gasps) intervened and called the police instead. So the SWAT team showed up and they waited and waited for two hours hoping that Jupiter would just go back into his cage and then they could make a decision about what to do with him. But when it was clear that he wasn't going anywhere because he was just pacing back and forth in front of (gasps) Joy's body. Meanwhile, all of the other cats around the park were just sitting or standing in their cages and staring at Joy's body as well. That is so eerie. Oh, I got goosebumps just now. Yeah, you can imagine the scene, blood everywhere, just absolutely horrific. Do you think they're all looking like, yes, someone finally did it? (laughs) Like, do you think that's why they're looking? Like, that's what you get. Ron, or were they like, oh, mum? Yeah, Ron's belief is that they were mourning their mother. Um, my belief is maybe no they way. were just I think they hungry. Were rejoicing. Yeah, or they're just cats and they're mm. just looking at a dead piece of meat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are Ooh, their prey. That is, can you imagine seeing that in person? I can't yeah. even. Yeah. Horrendous. Uh, Ron says that when Jupiter ripped out Joy's neck, the blood splashed all over his face and for the next few months he only saw red. The only colour that he could see when he opened his eyes was Mm. red. Um, That's some intense PTSD you'd have. Yeah. Um, Of course Mm. they ended up shooting Jupiter and they did an autopsy and, of course, it proved he was inbred, had been all along. Ron had just been ignoring all of the signs. Like I said before, they're unpredictable and they're difficult to train, but they just looked past all of those facts and chose to believe that he wasn't inbred. Um, And so... uh, What becomes of Ron? He's lost his two great loves. Plus now, really, he can't do cats any... Oh, just tell me, what becomes of Ron? What becomes of Ron? All right, so he'd lost everyone and everything. Um, He became a recluse for six months and he basically lost his mind in that time. His dream was completely (gasps) dead and it had all happened within the space of five weeks and it was all because of his negligence and his ego and his vanity. Hubris. And regard, I don't know how much he actually acknowledged this consciously, but it all came down to him. And he did fall into a very, very deep depression, made worse by the fact that the only people who were contacting him were people who wanted to offer to buy his remaining cats because they wanted to hunt them. Oh, no. Yeah. He was determined that he was going to keep the animals and um, do everything that he could to protect them. They were his reason to live. But he had to sell the ranch because he'd lost his income and he was spending $40,000 a month just on food for the cats. 
Um, so he had to find somewhere that he could go and he was approached by a company called Amazing Exotics and they're a nonprofit education center in Florida and they offered him a job and a home for the cats. So he oh. took five of the cats. Unfortunately, they couldn't take all of them. So some of the cats did have to be put down. And uh, Ron became an animal behaviorist, which meant that he was basically teaching people how to be a tiger trainer. And he's got a uh, very... Excuse me. <laughs> how is... <laughs> is he not the least qualified person? I feel like... I'm more qualified to do that than him <laughs> at this stage. It's so funny because his teaching style is very unconventional. Um, there's a documentary that shows a lot of him in the classroom and it is pretty much just him telling lurid stories about his sex life and showing home videos, a lot of which are of him and Joy dancing. And he claims but that how he's... how is that? <laughs> that is like me saying, okay... I can teach you to do heart surgery because I've done it twice and both times <laughs> I fucked it up royally, but I've done it. So have any of you done it? No. Who's the most qualified person in the room? Me. Like that is some bottom of the barrel bullshit. Yeah, it's very questionable, but I'm glad yeah. that it did happen and he got that job because one of his students, a guy called Adam, had a brother called Harris and Harris was a documentary filmmaker. Ah. So Harris decided, oh, I need to tell this story. And so he approached yeah. Ron and said, let's make a movie of this. It took yeah. them almost eight years to go through all of the home video footage. There was more than 160 hours of footage that these narcissistic people took of yeah, themselves of and yeah. each other. Um, there was also lots of media coverage and on-camera interviews to go through and they pieced together this story, which is predominantly Ron explaining everything. He is the narrator of the documentary. Yeah. It's called Cat Dances and it was released in 2007. It was nominated for a few different awards. Ron travelled mm. around to go to some of the premieres because this was his chance to be back in the spotlight once yeah, again. would have loved it. Um, yeah. He is a consummate performer and you can really see it in the documentary. He speaks like he's a really candid, open person and he shows a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff like him putting on his wig tape in the morning and brushing his mm. dog's teeth and stuff. So he's, you know, making it seem like everything is very um, honest and open, but it all does feel very, very performative because he's been a performer yeah. his entire life. Yeah. And he's told these stories a million times to his students, so it all sounds very rehearsed. And like you said, mm. this is all his side of the story and he can tell us whatever details he wants us to hear and whatever details he comes up mm. with in his imagination, like the I love... <sighs> moment yeah that no no yeah no. he's yeah totally yeah. but he was very happy well he's the only one left so he can write the narrative now that's right he's in control yeah, yeah. um he was very happy with the documentary. It was very sympathetic towards him. The only thing that they sort of disagreed about was Ron is adamant that Joy was not trying to commit suicide when she went out there with Jupiter, whereas Harris, the filmmaker, does believe that really? she wanted to end her life and so that's why she made the choice Suicide that she made to go out by there. by inbred white tiger. That's right, yeah. That's a way to go, isn't it? Yeah. I um, don't think that's true. Do you think that's what she did? Um, 
I kind of do just because um, when you read interviews with Harris Fishman and he talks about the different evidence to indicate because of all the different things that she'd said mm. and things that he had seen on some of their home video footage, he seems really, really certain that this was right. her way of ending it all without being sent to hell for committing suicide. Of course, of course. So yeah. it couldn't be... Okay, yeah, well, that makes me think it's more possible then. Mm. Yes, because I've heard Catholic people doing things like that so that they they set it up so that they will die but they're not the one who does it. That's right. You know, yes. just kind of a little loophole around that little sin there, yeah. around that little rule. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, yeah, maybe. And if she was off her face and on all who knows what kind of drugs she'd been given and mix that mm. with booze and mix that with profound grief mm-hmm. she could have just yeah not in her right yeah. mind yeah um so that was the only thing that they sort of disagreed on apart from that ron found the whole process to be very cathartic and he felt like he could move on with his life from this point yeah at the end of the documentary he vowed that he was going to sell everything and pack up and move to a monastery in thailand when he turned <laughs> 80 where he could live peacefully amongst the tigers and wildlife that they have mm-hmm. there in this monastery um, um yeah he's then- definitely the kind of person they want around their animals yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, And then at the very end of the documentary, we learned that Amazing Exotics had to close down in 2007 just before the documentary came out. And at that time, Mm -hmm. Ron only had two of his cats left alive and they had to be put down, which meant that he really and truly was the last member of their family left alive once all of this was said and done. Mm. Very sad. Well, it didn't sound like Amazing Exotics was... You know, what did they call themselves? An education? Not-for-profit education centre, yes. Yes. No, they weren't. They were just another dodgy animal park. And so they were just like Carol Baskin. They were just like Joe Exotic. Would you like to guess how and why Amazing Exotics was shut down? (gasps) Carol Baskin. That goddamn bitch Carol Baskin. (laughs) That goddamn bitch Carol Baskin. She got it shut down. Yep. Big Cat (gasps) Rescue was lobbying the USDA and Florida's Wildlife Conservation Commission to get them to shut down this park because they were. Why didn't she take all the tigers then? Why didn't she take all the cats? Uh, Good question. I do not know the answer to that. I mean, she's got limited facilities. So much of her activism is performative because she would rather get this place shut down and have all the animals killed, like, then, like, take the time to rehome them. It might Mm. take you a bit longer and you might not get to stand on your high horse outside of Capitol Hill and say you've got this victory. But, like, I mean, bureaucracy isn't sexy. It takes Mm. a while. It takes longer to do things. It's boring. But she could have found proper homes for all those cats. Instead, Mm. she just, oh, she's full of shit. I hate her. (laughs) I'm sorry, but she would rather shut, she would rather feel like a hero for shutting down a park and let all those cats die Mm. than take the time to find homes for them. I mean, I do not know. I could not find um, a record of what happened to all of those animals, but it was more than just cats. I mean, they had... It was like a Noah's Ark. They had everything from mm. chimpanzees to camels to warthogs, like 
two of everything at least. Um, so I don't know what became of them. But, yes, you're absolutely right. Shutting it down probably wasn't just the smartest, best solution. It was just the fastest and most dramatic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, damn care best. <laughs> She released a statement saying that she was not going to watch Cat Dances. She said it was mm-hmm. going to be nothing but a fluff piece and she had no compassion for Ron or for Joy. Um, 2010, mm. there was another um, episode of a documentary series on Animal Planet that's called mm. Fatal Attractions. That was dedicated <laughs> to telling the Ron and Joy story. I'm going to post a link to that if you want to see additional details and that has wish, some fantastic reenactments. I wish it was called Fatal Acaptions. <laughs> oh, I love a good reenactment. Awesome. Mm. And that is where we learned that at that time, because Amazing Exotics had shut down, Ron had returned to his first love, which was dance. He's a ballet dance instructor at a place called Dance Dynamics. I mean, not all. He sounds like a monster, but okay. Here's one (laughs) of the weirdest facts that I found, and I only found evidence of this on his Pinterest and then on some, like, legal US uh, websites. In 2015, he adopted a 26-year-old man from Egypt called Shalom Joseph as his son. Well, that was common back then before gay marriage was made legal in the US. Uh-huh. Um, older men would adopt their partners as a way that, that that meant they were legally each other's next of kin, legally family. Okay. I so thought I'd say that, that was his case. Egyptian lover. Yes. Yeah. Whether they're still together today, I have no idea, but I do know that Ron is still alive at 84 years old out there somewhere. 84. Wowzers. Mm. Yep. What a story. It's quite a saga and I think you'd agree that the moral here is don't f*** with wild animals and don't support any businesses that do exploit animals in any way. It's cruel and it's dangerous. Yeah. Seriously, like making wild animals perform tricks for you, it never pays off. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. You know how they say crime doesn't pay? Yeah. Making animals do tricks doesn't pay. Have I ever told you the story of when I went to the Moulin Rouge in Paris? No. This was in like 2011. I had no idea that they use live animals in their shows on the stage at Moulin Rouge. Do they? Um, Shetland ponies, giant um, (gasps) pythons, um, leopards, so many different animals and they all just look terrified. They even had a poodle and this guy was pulling on a string to make its lower jaw go up and down like it was a puppet. It was disgusting. And so I demanded my money back and they, of course, refused in their French accent and they were like, we have been sold out every single day since (laughs) 2000 and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, of course, because everyone is coming here expecting it's going to be Nicole Kidman and Can Can dancers ever since the movie came out. No one's expecting animal cruelty. (gasps) They refused to give me my money back. So I just grabbed two bottles of champagne and stormed out. (laughs) And legged it. (laughs) I love how I'm sitting here going all on my high horse. It's not fair. It's really mean. That's so awful. And I'm like totally about to go have like a massive beef burger for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know. Um, Wow. Well, I just, bloody hell. Mm -hmm. I guess if we've learned one thing. In this whole epic tale, that was excellent, by the way, it's that if you're going to be around big cats and you're a lady, 
You better not have <laughs> your period. <laughs> that, big cats and vampires. <laughs> uh, on that note. Be careful. <laughs> um, well, we give you just the gist. If you want more, we'll put um, all of Jacob's little linkies in the show notes. Follow Just The Gist Podcast on Instagram. I remember to post in it quite frequently now, so there's things on there. Follow yeah, Jacob William well. Stanley on Instagram because he's posting stuff now. <laughs> and I did notice some people are still demanding your skincare routine, so can you please hurry up and influence that shiz up and put sure that thing. stuff up? Mm-hmm. Um, follow me, Rosie Waterland. Please email us. We love your emails. Just the gist podcast at gmail.com. I think that's all we have to say. See you next week. See you next week. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Okay, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that and you're now ready to take notes on your homework assignments. Obviously, there's so much content available about Joe Exotic and all the characters from the first series of Tiger King. Everyone in his orbit has had the spotlight on them for the last year and a half. Um, So my list of recommended docos is certainly not comprehensive. Instead, I'd like to think of it as being carefully curated. Um, You can consume all of this stuff in whatever order you'd like, but what I'd suggest is that you start off with The Conservation Game, which came out in August of this year. It's fascinating. It follows a retired policeman from Ohio called Tim, and he had way too many experiences in his career where he and his colleagues would show up to people's homes in an emergency situation and they'd be very surprised to find unregistered exotic animals like tigers and chimps and lions hidden in the basement or chained up in the backyard or just roaming around the house. And over the years, he also was often called out when animals like that escaped or attacked their owners. And it boggled his mind that there were so many exotic animals, especially big cats, in this fairly small town of his in Ohio. So he started investigating to understand how these people were getting their hands on exotic animals in the first place and why there was no record anywhere of these animals' existence. And he ended up infiltrating the illegal trade circles and the animal auction circuits. And that's where he learned that this thing is huge and that it goes all the way to the top of the entertainment industry. He found evidence that some of the most famous quote unquote celebrity conservationists, think like Steve Irwin wannabes who sometimes have their own TV shows and live tours and frequently would appear on TV and do like late night shows and morning shows usually doing a segment where they'd show off something like a cute little tiger cub or a snow leopard cub or something and let celebrities play with them. And Tim found out that they weren't borrowing these animals from accredited zoos and sanctuaries like they claimed they were. Instead, they were buying or renting the animals from these really wretched, cruel breeding farms and supporting the abuse of animals. 
and then would go out into the public eye claiming to be advocates for animal welfare, while behind the curtain they've been part of this really terrible cycle of abuse and torture of animals. And of course, they were making large profits from it. So this documentary calls those celebrities out for the frauds that they are. And it also charts Tim's collaboration with Carol and Howard Baskin while they're lobbying to get the Big Cat Safety Act pushed through Congress to make a federal law that prohibits private ownership of any big cats across the United States of America. As we've mentioned in the past, every state has its own unique set of laws at the moment, and they're trying to make it consistent across the country over there. It also shows some of the resistance, fairly strong resistance, they come up against from the so-called conservationists who are fighting to minimise the regulations that currently do exist. And while all that's going on, Carol and Tim and their team find out that the guy they call Crazy Joe has just been arrested because he tried to hire an undercover FBI agent to assassinate Carol Baskin. And you see and hear their reaction to the whole thing in the moment. It's wild because obviously back then they could never have foreseen that Crazy Joe Exotic would end up becoming one of the most famous people on the planet and one of the most beloved prison inmates in history. Like I said, that one's definitely worth a watch. If you're in Australia, it's available on Stan. I won't give away the ending because there is a bit of a cliffhanger, but I will just give you a heads up. It's a real punch in the guts at times when you see the way that these animals are being treated and the way that they're being forced to live. And that, of course, is true of all of these shows, Tiger King itself included, obviously. And it's also true of the two Louis Thoreau documentaries I'm going to recommend next. The first of Louis' documentaries I reckon most of you have already seen. Rosie recommended it back when Tiger King first came out. It's a 2011 documentary he made called America's Most Dangerous Pets. The main character in that show is Joe Exotic in his first ever TV appearance. Louis spent 10 days with Joe back in 2011 filming and then only ended up using about 25 to 30 minutes of the most outrageous footage. It's worth seeing that if you haven't already, America's Most Dangerous Pets. Um, it goes for only like an hour. It is also on Stan in Australia. It's not essential viewing though. What I would say is essential is Louis' follow-up documentary called Shooting Joe Exotic. That came out in April of this year and it starts off with a letter that was sent by Joe Exotic from prison to a British journalist asking for help getting Louis Thoreau involved to help Joe tell the world his version of the truth. And obviously, Louis had been fascinated to see the global obsession with Joe and with Tiger King because he'd formed a relationship with Joe 10 years prior. And it's really not surprising that he then chose to make this follow-up so that he could document the repercussions of the first series. So Louis started off by revisiting the 10 days worth of footage he had from 2011, and he picked out some of the bits that he wanted to show the world that had been left sitting on the editing room floor for the last decade. 
Then he set out to interview Joe and some of the main characters from Tiger King, but then the producers of Tiger King found out about Louis' project and their lawyers sent him a letter just gently reminding him slash threatening him that almost all the people who appeared in Tiger King, including Joe Exotic, had signed exclusivity contracts and he could be sued for millions of dollars if he even showed their faces on camera. So Louis then had to pivot and make a new plan. And so instead of speaking to Joe and the folks from Tiger King, he visited and interviewed people who weren't in the original series, including some of Joe's family members, including his niece and his older brother, both of whom completely despised Joe. And when you watch this documentary, you'll easily understand why. And they do a really good job of helping Louis outline how Joseph Schreibvogel went on to become this fame-obsessed Joe Exotic caricature that we know today. It's worth watching just for that, to hear the family members speaking about him and his evolution over time, but wait, there's more. Louis also spends time with Carol and Howard Baskin, Carol's fresh from her stint on Dancing with the Stars, and together they visit Joe's old park, which at the time belonged to Carol and Howard. And when you watch it, you'll see the place was completely trashed. I I won't spoil it for you, but they find heaps of Joe's personal belongings there that he left behind. You'll see. It's shocking to see the state that the place ended up in. Watch it. It's on ABC iView. If you're here in Australia, I'm sure it'll be easy to track down wherever you are in the world. And when you view it, it's worth knowing that shortly after Louis filmed there, Carol and Howard sold the property. And one of their conditions of the sale was that whoever bought it could never, ever use the fact that it was once the Tiger King Park for commercial gain. Like if they wanted to turn it into a caravan park, they couldn't call it Joe Exotic Park or Tiger King Campgrounds or anything like that. That was one of the caveats in the contract. Now, on top of watching those documentaries, some additional listening would be to listen to the Wondery podcast series called Joe Exotic Tiger King. That has some sensational interviews in that series. It came out around the same time that Tiger King was first released on Netflix. And I remember really enjoying listening to it. And of course, the other big thing that I'll be making time for will be reliving the first series of Tiger King. I have no doubt many of you will be doing the same because I'm assuming that if you've stuck it out for this long into this episode, you're also pretty invested in the Tiger King saga. Okay, that's enough from me. Have a great week, everyone. Get excited for season two of Tiger King. Enjoy your homework assignments. Have fun with it. And we'll be back again next week. See you then. Bye. Listener.